Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Mets fans, and welcome to the Happy Recap Radio Show for this first day of May in 2016. I'm JB, along for the ride with you. Uh, EJ and Ryan are both under the weather today, so they won't be along, unfortunately. Hope they're better soon, and appreciate them covering for me when uh, I was stuck with a similar ailment last week. Uh, Mets lose today with a score of 6-1, to one, snapping their eight-game winning streak, and certainly... Uh, uh, the winning streaks are always meant to end, and you don't know when they're going to end or how they're going to end. But uh, they le- they um, end this way with against the uh, first place Giants uh, in the West, and playing the Giants in a uh, even number year. You know, you take two or three. If you're told you get two or three, you take them gladly. I think that's one of the keys I ta- take away from. And then the Mets get beat today by a pretty good pitcher, Madison Baumgartner. Um, Noah Syndergaard looked a bit human today, but certainly the weather was a bit inhuman, and uh, we, we certainly uh, will look forward to seeing uh, Noah re- um, return to his usual form, if you will, later on uh, a couple days from now. It's certainly not a nice day at all at the stadium, but uh, appreciate uh, the eight-game winning streak for what it is. The Mets currently sit a, ha- a full game out of first place. The uh, Nationals game is still going on. And certainly, uh, while uh, the um, you know it is just the first of May, I think it's important uh, that uh, we know that it's not uh, not great for your blood pressure to be constant scoreboard watching. But uh, certainly, nice over those eight game winning streak to know that uh, we pulled a little bit closer because you you can't win a pennant in April, they say, but you certainly can lose one, and uh, you know you don't want to end the month four or five games back when you still haven't played the Nationals uh, for the first time yet this season. A lot of people could point and say the Mets had a pretty easy schedule in April, but uh, I'd argue that the Nationals had an easier one, uh, despite the fact that the Cardinals seemed to pretty much roll over for them this weekend. I'm really excited right now, as uh, I have been on many occasions, and one of my absolute favorite people to talk Mets baseball with has written a new book, our good friend Greg Prince. The book's amazing again, how the 2015 New York Mets brought the magic back to Queens. Greg, it is so good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, and appreciate you stepping up and coming in a little early uh, when uh, I found out my co-hosts were just a bit under the weather. Not a problem. Well, let's talk, you know, before we dive into the book, I want to talk a little bit about the present, and certainly about the uh, some of the interesting things, the, some of the minutiae the first week, uh, first month, if you will, of the 2016 season. Uh, I, I did note that some of the overreactionaries today were pointing out that the Mets just can't seem to win in these 86 throwbacks uh, jerseys that they're wearing this this uh, season. But uh, I kind of wanted to get your take. I mean, we all know there's a lot of magic in those uniforms. Uh, talk a little bit about the uh, the the nostalgia that goes into seeing those out on the field. Well. I was excited to see them when they introduced them, but now that they've lost two in a row in them, clearly they're cursed. 
and they have to be burned, and we must never speak of 1986 again. So um, <laughs> I just feel really badly about that because it was such a good year. Now, um, it is uh, it is good to see them in action. Uh, it's a little disconcerting, I suppose, not just for the uh, fact that they're doing un-86-like things like losing in them, uh, God forbid, but... Um, just because they don't fit right, uh, you know, the 86 uniforms were, you know, form-fitting and the players were smaller then, so uh, it takes a little getting used to, but I, I thought it was a great move bringing them back, uh, wonderful celebratory gesture, something the fans can enjoy, and I hope they uh, they work okay on the players, and as far as, uh, you know, their record in them, I'm sure this too shall pass. So, uh, you know, every now and then you, you see one of these guys in one of those uniforms and you see number 20 and for half a second you think it's Howard Johnson. But no, it's Neil Walker. And uh, up, up and down the lineup where the numbers are comparable is concerned. But uh, no, let's it's talk a nice idea. A lot of, I mean, there have been a lot of things that you go, man, I can't believe that didn't happen in the you know 55 years of the franchise. Let's talk a little bit about that inning on Friday night. Twelve runs in an inning. It seems it seems hard to believe, but that had never happened before. Yeah, well, you know, how many, gosh, how many games are they up to? It was 8,020 with the no-hitter, and that's already four years ago. So we're talking, and we must be up, you know, about 8,600, 86. There, there, there's a sign of 8,600-something by now. You know, you, you have to get lucky, I suppose. And uh, th- there was a misplay or two at the wall. Uh, by the Giants, but you know it, it, it was the, I guess, epitome of this eight-game winning streak that everybody in the lineup was locked in, and there was nobody you could pitch around, and you know everything else is is sort of uh, good fortune at that point, and uh, you know to to get to the point where you had eight runs in, the bases loaded. And the one guy, I shouldn't say the one guy, because there are a couple of guys on that team you wouldn't mind having up in that situation, but the one guy you imagine doing the most dramatic thing, Cespedes, uh, taking that swing, um, you know, 12 runs an inning. It's it's obviously uncommon in general, and as you said, unprecedented in the Met Annals. Uh, you know, j- just a wonderful explosion. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be uh, at City Field that night. And, um, you know, you probably will never see that again. I mean, except on Mets Classics, I would hope. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I guess the uh, the typical, I shouldn't, you know, typical or instinctive Mets fan reaction, shall we say, would be concerned if they only scored one run for the next five innings. <laughs> but uh, I, I am not of the save some for tomorrow school. I say keep scoring and uh, we'll make more. But uh, that that was a great you know it was a great night and uh, you know it was a great eight game winning streak and so far it's a, uh, a pretty great season. And speaking of nostalgia, and you also mentioned Joanna Cespedes, uh, you and I had the opportunity to talk a little bit on Twitter about another Joanna Cespedes home run earlier in the week where he came off the bench and lasered one uh, out to left field uh, that both reminded us of another home run from years past. Yeah. Uh... You know, just the way it was hit, the circumstances to a certain degree uh, evoked Mike Piazza. And uh, that night in 2000 with uh, 
the the now puny ten run inning uh, that, that that I think lives lives on, regardless of the fact that the record was already broken in 2006 for most runs in an inning, and has been broken again. Uh, just a a very uh, wow! Can you believe that guy got up and did what he just did? Sort of thing. I mean, in, in Yoannis's case. Uh, you know, we're talking about a guy who hadn't played since Friday, so this was Tuesday, and you know, we didn't even know if he was capable of playing out, out with a knee injury. And you know, the, the word that came forth afterwards was uh, there, there wasn't a lot of preparation on his part. He was ready, grabbed his bat, he took one swing, much like Piazza did, uh, hit it to the same general area of the ballpark, a different ballpark, but still. And uh, elicited a great reaction. And in, in this, you know, in, in that case, it was uh, in the Piazza day. It was a uh, took the cap off a ten-run inning that brought the Mets back from seven runs down, and uh, you know, fireworks night and the whole bit. And uh, you know, really a, a signature moment in that season, in that era. And here, you know, you never know. Uh, it felt like a game the Mets were going to lose, which again is no crime. Uh, but you know it's one they pulled out of the of improbability. I, I had I was I looked the next morning. It wasn't posted yet in Baseball Reference. They have those little graphs that show you the probability of your win, and I don't really pay attention to them because you know game is over and you won. That's all I need to know. But I'm curious to see how deeply buried the Mets were uh, until that inning. And you know again. Uh, when we throw numbers around like $27.5 million, uh, it's kind of silly to say he's worth every penny. But, you know, when, when the word came down back in January that they had re-signed Cespedes at the so-called bargain rate of three years and $75 million, this is the sort of thing you know, you're dying to see, much like the Grand Slam that came a couple of nights later. So um, it was Piazza-esque in its way. <laughs> and um, I, I just thought I'll, I'll throw in here that uh, I know I'm on to talk about uh, my book about 2015, but but I'm working on a, a next book that is uh, due out next spring uh, about the Mike Piazza years. Uh, it doesn't have a uh, an official title yet, but uh, the, the one I'm working with is Piazza New York Catcher. Uh, the kind of tracing his his uh, t- excuse me, not Piazza New York Catcher, Piazza New York Legend. I just uh, stepped on my my own uh, play on words there. But, uh, you know, it will basically uh, attempt to recapture the Piazza years uh, in New York. Uh, The experience from a fan standpoint uh, of of watching, you know, an icon develop. Uh, It's kind of coincidental, perhaps, or kind of fitting that when Piazza came to the major leagues in 1992, it was just within a month of Tom Seaver being inducted into the Hall of Fame and that for for so long was all we had in the way of quote unquote an immortal in a Met uniform and a Met who went in to the Hall of Fame as a Met. And I think we we've, we've been searching for that validation ever since and have kind of missed it and it's eluded us and we I think we probably as 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 a fan base, as a franchise, kind of felt left out of every induction ceremony since then and we hadn't had a number to retire or or we had plenty of numbers to retire but we just didn't and uh, at last it's it's all coming together this summer culminating in uh, in Mike's uh, induction Cooperstown and uh, the next week the retirement of number 31 so uh, that 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 book is coming out from the same publisher 
uh, that did amazing again, and I'll have more to say on that in the uh, in the near future. But uh, that that is uh, something that is in the works, and I'm announcing it for the first time on the Happy Recap. You did say you had a little piece of scoop, so I was definitely curious what you had. And uh, I, you know, one of those things like, okay, note to self: add another book to the list because uh, I'll certainly be reading it as soon as it comes out, as I did this one. Um, and I, you know, it's funny I always tell people the first memory, and this is one of those weird things. The first time I saw Mike Piazza, he was playing in AAA for the Albuquerque Dukes, and his pitcher that day was Pedro Martinez. Well, and it's it, like, <laughs> talk about the future of baseball in one. That was year. some foreshadowing right there. And uh, you know, not it, often it's, can it's, you say the battery is Hall of Fame material. Yeah, and it's 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 funny when you look at a Mike Piazza box score, uh, Dodger box score uh, from. You know his early years. So many of them read like mini Met family reunions, knowing what we know now, because you had ex Mets and future Mets. The first game he played in was uh, I think Roger McDowell was not only the winning pitcher, but he he drove in the winning run in extra innings with a bases loaded walk. Daryl Strawberry had just come off the disabled list, and obviously Pedro Martinez was uh, coming up right around the same time. So. Um, it just kind of hit me that uh, you know Piazza and the Mets were certainly on parallel paths, not even necessarily going in the same direction, until that fateful uh, you know week in 1998 uh, drew them closer and finally converged their fates. And uh, you know, like I said, the the, the book will uh, attempt to just, you know, recapture you know, the excitement, maybe maybe a little bit of the frustration, but but mostly just the yeah, the the sense that you know we we had this guy uh, who be you know who came to us a stranger, a Dodger, you know, albeit from the Marlins, and uh, you know really became I, I really don't like this this phrase because it uh, t- tends to have uh, been been born out of uh, Derek Jeter and the Yankees, but really became the face of this franchise in a way I don't think anybody has ever been. Uh, as much as we talk about David Wright and as as, as great as Tom Seaver was. Uh, I think just the circumstances and the times we lived in, if you talked about the Mets, late 90s, early 2000s, the one name that came, that everybody knew was Mike Piazza. And he just, you know, he had a supporting cast, to be sure. And there were some great players on those teams, but there was just something about the, the Mike Piazza Mets that uh, left its imprint. So, uh, like I said, I'm, 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 I've, just, I've only just begun the research and uh, – We'll have more more to say down the road, but I'm, I'm excited that I'm excited to be doing it. I'm excited he's going to the Hall of Fame. Obviously, excited that there will be number 31 on the uh, on, on the wall, and I will look forward to him and Pedro on the same uh, the same stage. Pedro, uh, hopefully, uh, in the background, uh, applauding uh, his his old catcher and sometimes nemesis, because uh, that 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 must get a little odd for players who didn't really care for each other in uh, in, in their playing days. So now all be on the same team, sort of, uh, once they go to Cooperstown. And he'll be a t- he'll be a teammate again of Tom Glavin. Come to think of it, so yeah, well, it's, well, uh, it's, it's, talk, it's talk about your, your, your Met family reunions. <laughs> well, yeah, except you know, Tom's just not devastated, but that's okay. Um. Yeah, got <laughs> to say that. Can I, can I just uh, but, if I can add a quick aside? The, oh yeah, uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, I, I guess in a way it has something to do with Piazza, uh, but not directly. I was at when the the game Friday night before the 12 run inning. I was having dinner with a friend of mine, and uh, we were wandering the uh, 
the Mets Hall of Fame and watching the video that they have in there, which is a really well-done video. And there's a, a quick you know, gl- glimpse of Mike Hampton uh, making, you know, pitch, pitching the shutout that wins them the pennant, wins him the MVP of that league championship series. And we we both felt kind of, you know, I wouldn't I don't know if we felt bad, but we felt as if, uh, you know, people don't really appreciate how good Mike Hampton was that year in that postseason. I said, all anybody remembers is the, the thing about schools. You know, all anybody ever says is, yeah, oh, he went to the schools, the schools in Denver, great. And sure enough, about five minutes later, maybe 10 minutes later, because we took our time going through the museum, uh, we wander over to a display of uniforms through the years, and one of them was Mike Hampton's uniform from 2000. And sure enough, I overheard, completely unprovoked by, by me or my friend, hey, look at that, the guy at the schools, Hampton. <laughs> There's just certain things uh, attached themselves to certain players. And uh, the devastation thing, I guess, will always be with Glavin. And it, it only it's only recently that I managed to... Uh, feel I could use the words disappointed and devastated without having to make a Tom Glavin remark <laughs> or a Tom Glavin parathetical remark in my writing. And uh, I can certainly understand how it stays. I can certainly understand how it, how it sticks with Hampton. So uh, just one of those things. It just shows we've, funny, we've paid attention a lot. <laughs> it's funny with Hampton. Uh, he's uh, This year he's the uh, bullpen coach for the Seattle Mariners. And um, Safeco Field is one of those uh, bullpens where you know you can kind of get down up and close if you're a fan down there. And I haven't gotten to a game yet up there this year, but it's so tempting to walk by and ask how the schools are. It really <laughs> is, and I I know that's not cool uh, all these years later. But there's just part of it. It's like you know, if if he had st- you know the whole what if he had stayed thing, you know, that whole thing. But uh, you know, I digressed just a little bit, I suppose, on that. But uh, you know, as far as you talk about Piazza as the face of as the franchise, and well, I'll use this kind of to, to wheel back into 2015, but we'll kind of start with the present. And how who who do you, I mean? It is really hard looking at what we have now. What we had, you know, many of these all these players were part of the 2015 team. Uh, who could possibly be quote unquote the face of the franchise going forward here? I mean, what what are you, if you have to think of you know. Can that be a pitcher in this era? Uh, and you know, if not, is it Michael Conforto? I mean, it's that simple. Oh, I I think we're probably on the verge of finding out, and may not know it, uh, you know, for for a year or so. If we're you know, again, we should be lucky enough to have somebody who we want to put on that pedestal and have somebody who who emerges you know, out front for a team that is worth you know to the outside world talking about. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if Rico Bruno or Todd Hunley, for example, was the face of the franchise in their days, but, you know, let's face it, nobody cared because there was not much face to the franchise to begin with. Um, you know, if you had asked a Mets fan or a, an observer of, of Met Matters, uh, you know, a year ago, you would have said it was Matt Harvey. I mean, Matt Harvey was the the fulcrum on which this uh, franchise's fate seemed to be balanced. He was certainly the guy who had garnered, you know, all, all the notice and all the fame, and the fact that he had been missing and was coming back was a big deal. And he'd had the, you know, his own day and started the All Star game. We know all the qualifications, and now he's at the moment almost a footnote <laughs> to what's going on. So these things can can be a little unpredictable, I suppose. Uh, you know. 
today, as, as you said, uh, Syndergaard had his first so-so outing. Does that make him any any less of a face? <laughs> or, you know, I mean, you know, Tom Seaver had bad days, too, so we don't know. Um, if Cespedes stuck around, uh, that would be interesting. But, uh, you know, Conforto is does seem to be the guy who's going to be here a while, uh, S- Scott Boris uh, <laughs> representation notwithstanding. So, um, you know, I, on one hand, I, I feared going into the season the idea of putting too much pressure on Conforto or, or you know, just deciding in advance that he's going to have, you know, some extraordinary set of numbers because it's just dangerous to operate that way. And yet, one month in, it's like, hey, this guy is is one of one of the greats in the game now, uh, which which may be stretching it just a tad, but you know, he's certainly off to one of the best starts. And it, it doesn't seem out of his skill set to use another one of those Metzian phrases we never lose uh, that he will be that guy. Um, you know, I, th- I think as long as David Wright is around, he's always going to be at least nominally, you know, the guy at the at the front of the line. Of uh, w- whether somebody else is hotter or not uh, in the in a moment, and but um, you know, unfortunately, David Wright, there is despite his contract, there is an endpoint somewhere in his future, uh, not that far down the road, given given his uh, back situation. So uh, I think where that they it remains to be seen, a, a very big to be determined, but. Uh, you know, if you're lucky, you uh, you have a situation like '86, and you have several faces of the franchise, because you know in those days you had you know four larger than life personalities and players in, in Straw and Doc and Keith and Gary. In a way, they all kind of cancel each other out in telling the history of the franchise, and I think that's why nobody ever had his number retired because you sort of would have to retire everybody's number, and maybe that's a little much. I don't know, but. Um, should Conforto earn it? Uh, I'm all for it. Seems seems like a good kid, and uh, seems like a great hitter. And but first, you know, let's let's get into first place before uh, you know we we, st- we start uh, having the MVP award shipped to his house, I guess. But uh, it's a nice problem to have, or at least a, a nice challenge to to think about. And if you think about it, the amazing thing is, as we kind of look into 2015, and of course the book's amazing again, how the 2015 New York Mets brought the magic back to Queens, written uh, by my guest Greg Prince. Um, you look at, we're talking about names like Noah Syndergaard, we're talking about you know, Michael Conforto here, and you, talk about, uh, you can even talk about Stephen Matz to some extent here. These are people who were not on the opening day roster last year, and uh, for one of them, they were in A-ball. Yeah, this these were some guys who kind of developed maybe under the radar or developed quickly. I mean, in some cases, their development was on pause because of injury, but uh, it it was a team that uh, you know the the whole of 2015 kind of came together while in progress, which is interesting if you think about it because when they got off to the the start that really propelled them, the 13-3 and three and 11 in a row, uh, Syndergaard, Mats, Conforto, say nothing of Cespedes, uh, none of them were here. <laughs> so it, you, you can ask yourself, well, you know, what, what, was this already a pretty good team uh, just waiting to get better, or was that a flukish start and they need, really needed the help? Maybe, uh, maybe somewhere in between. But, uh, you know, it, it showed that... You know, while we were sitting around and uh, 
perhaps legitimately griping, uh, you know, in, in the years preceding 2015, that nothing, nothing is going right, nothing is getting done. In fact, there was talent; it was being developed, and uh, you know, it, it all emerged more or less at once, which is uh, a, a nice way for it to happen. One of the things I think, uh, you know, we, we of course, you and I and AJ and Ryan, all of us have had conversations together many times over the years, both online and on, on this podcast. And, uh, you know, certainly a lot of the conversations that have occurred, you know, is how the Mets approved, how they did, how they looked this year. Um, and, you know, I had you on a couple times during the season last year. But I, I think the first thing for us last year was um, the man I now refer to as the Prophet Steve, Steve Ketman. Uh, who, of course, came out with the Baseball Maverick book uh, prior to spring training last year, which, let's be honest, it's, the title itself inspired giggles and guffaws, uh, but really turned out to be a great inside look to exactly what you're talking about, the behind-the-scenes things that were going on with this team to help build it up into the team it became and to show that Sandy wasn't the guy who was just willing to stay pat with what he had and, uh, and uh, take a step forward when he needed to, and he proved that at the deadline last year. Yeah, they, uh, you know, Ketman was a prophet without honor, to be sure, in the run-up to the release of his book. And and even his book, to be fair, uh, who was the lead character in a a playing sense? It was Zach Wheeler, who may still have a a fine career, and we may uh, be leaning on him in the second half of this year. But, you know, Zach had the Tommy John surgery and had nothing to do uh, with on-field Success in 2015, uh, you know, Josh Edgen, Vic Black, those were guys we were sort of counting on, and they were out. And, uh, you know, you know the, the easy parallel to make is to, uh, you know, the, the Frank Cashin years and uh, 1984 and all, all this pitching talent coming to the, the fore and uh, a team that nobody saw coming out of nowhere and winning 90 games. But uh, I, I am reminded, actually, um the Joe McElvain years, which actually uh, were truncated when he was dismissed for not having, as I used the phrase before, the skill sets. Uh, you know, you went into the 1997 season uh, off a string of really lousy seasons. Uh, you had been set up to rely on the three generation K pitchers, Paul Sefer, Isringhausen, and Wilson, none of whom were available at the start of 97, only Isringhausen, who pitched it all that year, late in the year, and plus, you know, the two guys you were counting on, perhaps most based on the year before, Gilkey and Johnson had sort of uh, so-so years. Uh, One of them wound up being traded, and in the end, they won 88 games, and (laughs) they had strengths, you know, you you did not foresee. It may may not have been the exact same kind of roster that uh, came together in 2015, but I, I guess it shows that you know you, you can follow these things, and and I'll be the first to admit I don't, you know, tear apart minor league scouting reports and look at statistics because I'm just you know I, I only have so much time in a day <laughs> to devote most of it to the major league Mets and you know other things that I have to do in my life, but um, you know some, sometimes these things really do come together you know at, at spots where you're not looking so. Uh, you know, Ket- Ketman's book was very interesting. It was, it was a great portrait of what Alderson had been up to. Although I have to, again, you know, Zach Wheeler and, uh, to a lesser extent, Josh Satin were the two guys he wrote about. <laughs> so um, neither one of them ha- had all that much to do with last year. 
But uh, they're, they're, you know, again, just to bring it back to the Alderson Cashin thing, you know, that that was a team that was going nowhere in the early 80s. They they put it together uh, in the minor leagues, and uh, you know, the, the the fruits of their labors uh, paid off. And uh, maybe that's what we're seeing now. I only say maybe because we have, you know, last year and we have a good start this year and almost don't want to get ahead of myself in uh, deciding that, uh, you know, we are now in a golden era. But I got to say, after after an April uh, like we've just had, uh, it's looking pretty good for the next uh, little while. I want to ask you something that you, uh, I think a good historical per, uh, perspective. You know, we've talked a lot about over the years, you know, different topics. Uh, what would uh, this situation, you know, what would this have been like on, if Twitter were around then? Talk a little bit of what, what Twitter might have been like in those early years of Cashin. Um, how quickly do you think um, social media would have called for his head? Well, immediately. Because, you know what, to be uh, to be honest, <laughs> social media is just a, a different venue for fans who get easily riled and fed up, you know. You know, but before social media, which wasn't that, all that long ago, you know, what would have, what would what would have we used uh, as Bullet a substitute boards, for that? We would have said sports That's talk boards, radio. Yeah. And before That's that, it, we yeah. would have said we would have said you know angry letters to the editor, uh, or people booing, and you know it's just I don't know if it's just the New York nature of things, uh, if it's the Mets fan nature of things, it's just fans in certain markets, or it's everybody, but people you know want results right away, um, and it is hard to sell. You know, an, another uh, 74 and 88 type of season as progress, and you have to be committed and patient to understand that you know some some things are going right you just can't see them yet so uh you know cashin took his lumps on pre-wfan sports talk radio uh he took it from the columnists um he wasn't vilified i don't think alderson was necessarily vilified but you know we, we just have more of an outlet for our you know spur of the moment disgust or, or frustration really is the better word and you know when, when things went well as they as they turned last year you know people stopped being upset or or deciding that they were upset because there was nothing to be upset about and uh, ultimately you know they 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 use standings in baseball for a reason uh, to to tell you if your team is doing well or not so well and People are are going to react to them. Uh, they just have a, a different means of reacting to them today than they ever have, and more people are, you know, accessible. More more people's thoughts are accessible to other people, and it forms a critical mass. And uh, and let's face it, some people just enjoy uh, bitching about things, <laughs> and uh, people feed off of each other. So you know, I, I think if if it had really been an issue, I don't think Alderson would have lasted. Uh, as long as he has with what he's now in his sixth season. Uh, I will use a phrase very few people have ever used. To the Will Pond's credit, <laughs> they, did not, uh, they did not panic. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was ever in their minds to uh, to replace Alderson, but they didn't, and uh, nor should have they. And uh, everybody is, uh, ex- except on days where the Mets lose 6-1, to one, and... Uh, it's no fun. Uh, everybody is benefiting, and I'm gl- glad they stuck with him. You know, he stuck with us. And, that, and that's the thing. To me, I, I feel like it was obvious, and I think this goes with Terry as well, that um, 
you know, it was, it's been obvious for quite some time that on the various levels of the organization, there is a buy-in to the program uh, from the player level all the way up to ownership, uh, whether it be with you know, Terry and his systems in the clubhouse and uh, Sandy you know, in the front office. It seems like there's just been singularly a buy-in on every level. Okay, what's the plan? Let's move towards it. And, yeah, there are a couple of hiccups along the way this, you know, that slowed things down. Matt Harvey's Tommy John surgery, uh, Zach Wheeler's Tommy John surgery really did slow it down, but it was still in fact the, the the unexpected utter crash and burn of Ike Davis certainly fits in there as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, it maybe took a year or a year and a half longer than planned and prior to exporting a few, importing a few players you hadn't necessarily expected you might need. Uh, but, um, the reality of it is that the the plan certainly seems to be in full swing now, and Met fans are seeing the benefits. Well, I imagine as, as in any organization, I don't just mean sports, you know, having a consistent message and being able, being within the organization, being able to follow along and kind of know what's expected of you and being communicated to probably helps everybody. And I think one of the things that's really impressed me, and I always say it about Terry, but it's probably true about Sandy, too. Um, you don't read blind quotes for the most part. I can barely or even on the record quotes, uh, say, for maybe a disgruntled relief pitcher now and again who, who didn't want to warm up six times and not be used. Um you, you don't read, uh, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, Terry couldn't manage a bleeping bleep meat market or anything like that. Or I have no idea what's going on around here, said one Met. Um, and that, that I think it was always a good sign. And, you know, again, going back to Ketman's book, you know, you, you got the sense that Alderson is somebody who has a vision, uh, is kind of determined to implement it. That doesn't uh, you know overwhelm you with a, a lot of bluffness about it, but uh, they think they they probably made made their uh, their message clear, and uh, yeah, buy-in is a great word for it. Uh, you know, everybody here seems to know why they're here and uh, what they're supposed to do and play to their capabilities, and you know. And you know, it takes sometimes. I think we get impatient not just with wins and losses, but maybe why doesn't Terry, you know, use Conforto more often against lefties, or why is he resting Duda against Bumgarner? Um, why don't you give uh, Robles maybe the eighth inning? That's a bad example. I don't think anybody really wants to see Robles in the eighth inning, but um, that sort He's of thing. He's got parents and, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, it, it's. Okay, considering where where they were before these guys came and you know got a steady foothold into what they were doing, it is refreshing because you know I, I don't want to I don't want to dump on uh, Alderson's predecessor, but you know un, under Omar there there was this sense of chaos, to deserve it or otherwise. I mean there were some good times too, but uh, it just kind of felt like nobody knows what the hell is going on. And it felt that way under Duquette. It felt that way with Steve Phillips. It felt that way to a certain degree with McIlvain so, and Al Harrison. So, um, you know, somebody knows what he's doing. And fortunately, he's he's running the Mets organization now. Well, and the thing, too, I mean, you know, it used to be that, you know, no one knew what they were doing, but we all knew what they were doing. 
in the sense that uh, everything that was going on with the front office seemed to find a way of leaking out. Um, whereas nowadays, it, it uh, you know, every once in a while, something will get out, like the Mets are getting close on acquiring Neil Walker. Well, that's great, but you don't see the 10 minutes later when they announce, oh, yeah, we also signed a Drupal Cabrera, where you go, where the hell did that come from? Uh, you know, and it seems like uh, you know Sandy is certainly more capable of you know it's like the Mets have made, you know pick up Johnson and Uribe really seriously where did that come from um, or the my personal favorite yeah we have no money left we won't be signing anybody else uh, oh yeah we signed Bartolo Colon yeah well you know there's no no reason to conduct these things in public I mean it's, you know things are going to get out certainly you know the 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 other side of the coin and maybe the, this is also slowed down. There, there was that period where you would just be, be reading, you know, not not from the players, but from, you know, unnamed front office sources. And, you know, we, we always use, you know, Sandy's name as sort of a catch-all for probably, you know, dozens of people who are working on these, these trades and so forth. But there was always somebody who had to uh, kind of uh, take a swipe at Ike Davis's nighttime habits or Justin Turner's commitment to uh, staying in shape or, or whatever it was. And I always thought that that, that was kind of a bad look, uh, that there was no need to kind of, kind of kick these guys on their way out the door. Um, you've, you've seen less of that, too. So, uh, the, yeah, it, it is kind of nice to uh, to walk into these uh, you know winter meetings and – See, see the team come come home with uh, un- unexpected presence, shall we say? Like, oh, you brought me something from Nashville. You brought me a second baseman, or you brought me an extra starter. Um, it's fine. I like being surprised as long as it's you know not not a horrifying surprise. <laughs> and, uh, as you know. long as all the assistant GMs keep their shirt on, I'm a happy fan. There you go. So in talking about Amazing again, when did you decide, at what point did you decide that this this needs to be immortalized in a book? Well, it had been a little, little bit in the back of my mind somewhere, you know, probably you know, once they started taking off and playing well in August. But I, I don't want to give you the impression that, that I was proactive about this. Uh, I got a phone call uh, literally the afternoon of Game 1 of the World Series uh, from an editor I know who said we want to take it basically we want to take advantage of this Mets thing and we want to put together a quickie book uh, if the Mets win the World Series and get out there right away and you know we I think they they turned to me uh, for, for among other reasons they they knew that I'd written a lot during the season because of uh, a faith and fear and flushing and that I could probably put something together quickly enough. And there, there were two caveats uh, to a prospective book, which was one, uh, the Mets had to win the World Series. And two, uh, I would have to have a book written basically about 10 minutes after the last out, uh, or you know, no later than maybe the day after the parade. Um, and it was going to be a challenge. You know, certainly, I you know, there was no counting on the Mets winning the World Series, and and that sort of bothered me from from a karmic standpoint because now I wasn't just rooting for the Mets to win the World Series; I was rooting for myself to be able to publish another book, and I kind of didn't want to confuse the two. It was it's kind of a, a strange thought. Like I, I can't be rooting for myself; I have to root for my team. But uh, you know, and again, it wasn't going to happen if they didn't win anyway, and I, I had to uh, you know. Get, Get, get right down to it immediately anyway. And, you know, j- just the way that, you know, the beat writers are 
writing a going account of a given game so they can make their deadlines, I began writing a book about the 2015 Mets while they were in the midst of the World Series, knowing that it very well might not be published. And uh, I spent the the week that they were in Kansas City, uh, games one and two, and the day after, the travel day, I guess, you know, reliving spring training and the early part of the season, and and sending off uh, at the time what what were the, the the first five chapters, maybe not the five chapters that are in there now as the first five chapters, but sending five chapters to the editor, and then hauling ass to uh, the Loyal Railroad Station near me and going to Game 3 of the World Series. So uh, it was, you know, those were the two things that were, were dominating my uh, field of vision. And when the Mets won Game 3, you know, I said, hey, maybe this will really work out because now we're, you know, down two games to one, but, you know, win tomorrow, it's a brand new series. you got Harvey going Sunday night. We go back to Kansas City. You know, you you get that optimism going and, uh but they lost game four, which I also went to, and it was pretty depressing. And not only did I not write anything there directly thereafter, uh, you know, I've pretty much given up on the whole thing because it was three games to one. And at that point, I'm not even thinking about the book. I'm just thinking about how much it sucks to lose the World Series. And then, you know, as, as a fan will, when first pitches until 837, you have time to bring yourself back to uh, to optimism and, you know, Sat down, watched game five, watched Harvey throw eight great innings, thinking, okay, we're going to get to three games to two here. We are going to go back to Kansas City uh, tomorrow after I write my blog tonight, my my article for our blog. I will start back in on on the book, and, well, you know what happened. Uh, Royals tied the game, and they win in the 12th inning, and uh, I figure, well, that's that, so... Uh, early Monday morning, I, f- I finished writing my blog post, and then uh, it feels like I just kind of crawled under the covers for the next uh, 24 hours or however long I was able to do that for. And uh, to say arrangements had been made uh, in case they didn't win, and I was going to get what they call a kill fee for my trouble. And I get a call from my editor on the Tuesday now after the World Series, so it's only one week later since I last spoke to him, and I figure he's just you know calling to confirm that the book is off, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll send you you know whatever percentage we were going to send you, and he says you know what we think it's a great story, uh, the Mets winning the pennant, and we want a book anyway about the Mets, so I was given a little more time to work on it, and I was given some more words, which a writer always appreciates. Uh, when you're trying to tell a story uh, too quickly uh, or in, in too confined to space, you're afraid you're going to leave uh, God knows what out. So um, it was back to work on the 2015 season, even though the Mets uh, at this point were had cleaned out their lockers and gone home, and Kansas City was uh, the, the city where they were celebrating. So I spent uh, all of November uh, and a little bit of December writing the manuscript, and then parts of December and January proofreading and making edits and so forth. And then you know, it was more or less done on, on, on my end. And then, you know, I, I look out the window and it's, there's a blizzard happening here in New York. And uh, there's uh, news on Twitter that uh, the Mets are signing Cespedes again. <laughs> it's spring training suddenly. And I just realized, you know what, I, 
I, and I, I don't say this out of, out of any sense of uh, I want anybody to feel bad for me, but it's like, you know, I, I never had an off season. I was like completely lost in the 2015 season until it was 20, 2016 season, which isn't a bad way to spend your winter, to be honest. So, um, so anyway, that, 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 that's the TikTok basically on the book. But, uh, you know, it came to be because somebody thought there'd be a demand for it. And uh, in a way, speaking from a completely mercenary standpoint, in a, in a way it worked out for me and this book, because I, I imagine that had the Mets won the World Series, other publishers were prepared to do what this one was, which was to have a book out you know, five minutes later, and I probably would have been just one person in a crowded field, uh, various publishers hoping that while you're buying your commemorative sweatshirts and pennants and whatnot, you'll grab this book. And instead, I unless I've missed something, I haven't seen any other 2015 Mets books. And from a creative standpoint, uh, you know, of course, I would have rather written about the the year the Mets won the World Series. But uh, you know, it, it gave me one one more twist and or turn in a in a, uh, a season and a book full of them. So uh, you know, a, a lot of people have said to me, "I can't wait for the sequel," meaning uh, you know, a 2016 book with a slightly happier ending. And uh, it's always nice to leave them wanting more, I suppose. So uh, I, I sure as hell hope that happens. But uh, right, right now, uh, it, it's just—it's good to have this on record. I think, uh, you know, I, I don't view, and I, I don't think just because I wrote a book about it, I, I don't view 2015 as the year the Mets lost the World Series. I view it as the year they won the pennant and they were returned to prominence and you know g- gave us memories that. I think we'll be talking about as fans, you know, for the rest of our lives. And um, they're really, you know, yeah, you can pick apart uh, the World Series. And I do a little bit in one chapter, try to rip the Band-Aid off because there's no avoiding it. But, you know, they give us, you know, a maybe without the single dramatic home run we'll be talking about forever – you know, they gave us a 1951 Giants or a 1973. You gotta believe Mets um, situation. And uh, you know, really, uh, as a Mets fan and somebody who kind of considers myself—I don't know where you get your license for this—but someone who considers himself a Mets historian, I'm you know honored to be the one who was able to put this in one place. And it's it's my hope that uh, not only you know people like us who experienced this firsthand will you know read it and say you know yeah that that was great that uh, all the things that we got to see and and live through but that uh, some Mets fan who isn't quite old enough yet to have you know appreciated what happened last year maybe someone who isn't born you know, <laughs> you know will pick up this book down the road sort of like I did in the wake of 1969 and all the all the books that were written then because uh, 69, I was six years old, and you know, I, I witnessed the World Series being one of a few other things, but I didn't completely appreciate what was going on around me, and I needed those books to kind of fill me in on the backstory and and all the uh, the ups and downs. And I, I hope this book, you know, again, this is not how it's being marketed, but this is my own hope that that this book serves that purpose uh, a few years down the road for for some other people. Yeah, the, um, the and as the historian, you'll probably get the references. I I, I kind of look at. This is a you know kind of the uh, yeah the the year the Mets lost last place for this generation. Yeah, that's that's a good comparison. And you know the, the great thing about the year the Mets lost last place is they came out with that in the middle of the season, or you know after uh, a week in July or ten ten days in July, whatever it was that they did a um, eventually a paperback version with a follow up uh, with the World Series and all. 
But uh, in, in a way, 2015 was exactly that. You know, it was going to be one of those handful of years where the Mets make the great leap forward, and which itself is a great story. I don't know that anybody would want to publish it. You know, just, gee, the Mets won more than they lost for the first time since 2008. Isn't that great? But it would have made us all feel good, and we would have all looked forward to this year and hope they continued. And then they just took the, this quantum leap uh, that I don't think any of us by late July were counting on. As 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 good as they started the season in April – uh, given all they went through in May and June and much of July, um, I don't think anybody was looking at this team as a World Series team. <laughs> those those days in July where they were scoring uh, either uh, run, zero or runs. one runs, yeah. or 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 those or those days where uh, the, you know they scored uh, seven runs and uh, the, they had an enormous lead washed away in the rain and uh, so forth. So. Uh, you know, I, I've been a, I've been around this team as a fan for uh, now. This is my 48th season. I don't think I ever saw anything like this before. So uh, there were, you know, I, I think it, you, you don't have to be that great a writer to to find drama and uh, validation and, and everything else uh, in the 2015 Mets. So uh, I won't say the story wrote itself, but uh, I certainly had good material to work with. Well, and I mean, certainly, besides the point, you know, that, that there were players that played a large role in what happened in 2015, whether it be Cespedes or Uribe, Kelly Johnson, Michael Conforto, you know, Stephen Matz, Noah Syndergaard, that weren't there in the beginning. You know, if, if, if you had told me last spring when we were talking about the season yet to come that the two uh, folk stories, the, the two big stories of the year were going to be Ruben Tejada and Wilmer Flores, I would not have believed you unless I, I'd heard that they were going to hold up a bank together in Midtown Manhattan at lunch hour. Which which would have allowed the, the Wilpons to sign a couple of free agents, you would figure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, these these were guys who were, uh, you know, kind of on the periphery of our concerns. I guess one of them was going to be shortstop no matter what. I guess uh, Flores started the season and they kind of traded it off. But, uh, you know, the Wilmer Flores thing was just too perfect you know a guy who is is traded <laughs> and then he's not traded we talked about things leaking out uh you know bef- before we uh before we give this front office credit for its uh, CIA like ability to keep a secret uh obviously that that was the uh, the big one that that got out and then didn't happen and uh, you know, talked about Zach Wheeler before. That was really the reminder that Zach Wheeler was even on the roster, or you know, albeit on the disabled list. Uh, you know, Flores and Wheeler were going for Carlos Gomez on a Wednesday night, and uh, won't that be great? And then it wasn't. And then you know, it's just, you know, oh my God, what's wrong with the Mets not not making this trade? And then um, as far as uh, you know, a couple of days later with Cespedes uh, en route. There's uh, Flores hitting the home run that beats the first place Nationals and really began to turn everything around. And of course Tejada, you know, the guy we, uh, you know, I think I think after a while, it's hard to speak for everybody, but I, I would say a plurality, if not a majority, of Mets fans were, were you know, ready to see Tejada be replaced by whoever, and then he becomes, you know, our, our cause because uh, Chase Udley had the, the nerve to crash into him. Uh, oh, absolutely miserable slide uh, in the middle of a playoff that we never dreamed that either the Mets or Tejada would be in, and um, you know, leading to uh, one of the great uh, outbursts of, of love and affection when he comes out in a Mets logoed cane 
before the the first playoff game ever at City Field, and then you know it's it's, it's ironic, I guess, that he's not was not here to uh, be a part of the uh, the flag raising a few months later. But uh, yeah, they they no matter what happens in Flores's and and Tejada's career, uh, there, there's no way that they are not folk heroes uh, forevermore. And uh, you know, I you know the the uh, Saturday Giant game that I was at with a friend of mine, um, not the twelve inning, uh, not the twelve run inning, but uh, the next day that they won, um, Angel Pagan was in the lineup for the Giants, and I. Usually we'll applaud, you know, some ex-Met, but after a while, you know, the, the novelty wore off. I'm sure I applaud Angel Pagan, you know, the first time he came back to City Field. And my friend uh, said, uh, you're not applauding Angel Pagan. And I said, I'm, not, I'm no longer in the Angel Pagan business. And uh, I can't imagine feeling that way about Ruben Tejada if he uh, you know, gets off the disabled list and comes in with the Cardinals or, you know, whenever his next time at City Field is. And, uh, you know, he will deserve a standing ovation, just as Daniel Murphy will uh, – Maybe John Neese will sit and applaud politely. But, uh, you know, you, th- you think about all these guys who we've talked about on, on these shows for years and that now they, uh, whether they're still with the Mets or not, but even the, the guys who are not, you know, have had this halo about them. And uh, it's, it's nice to realize that, you know, while we were sitting here waiting for this team to get better, you know, that these guys who we got probably grew frustrated with over time, you know, contributed to a great great season and a great league championship and uh as, as wonderful as it was to bring guys up from the minor leagues who succeeded right away and for alderson to make trades uh for for guys who became heroes in the baseball sense uh you know it, it was nice to see uh, some of these guys reach at least the precipice of the promised land with the mets and uh, i think that's something we'll, we we as fans uh you know shouldn't lose sight of and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll keep in mind uh, next time uh we see them, and at the very least, give them a nice round of applause. Well, that's you know, one of the things you were talking about earlier too, with you know, with nostalgia and whatnot. It's, I kind of feel the same way, of course, about anybody even vaguely associated with the '86 Mets. That's kind of the same thing. It's like for years afterwards, you know, especially living out here on the West Coast, even though I was in New York at '86 up through '88. You know, for years afterwards, it's like, I want to go to Seattle to catch a game. Who's who's playing? Well, it doesn't matter. They got one of the '86 Mets on the team. Oh. Okay, I guess we can go. Oh, you know, it, it's you know that kind of thing. It, it, you have that same kind of aura to you. I mean, the 86 Mets are revered, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of them probably shouldn't be quote-unquote revered, uh, but they're, they're still our 86 Mets. Yeah, I think you, you uh, well, you know, I, I try not to worry about what they're like as human beings as long as they don't break, break the law too badly. In the case of the 86 Mets, break the law too badly because it's kind of a given that some of them broke the law. But, uh, well, you know, even, you know, the, the 99, 2000 Mets give, give or take a Mike Hampton, uh, you know, you're, you're in the Pacific Northwest. I, ha- I have to imagine you embrace John Olrude, uh, every chance you got, for example, I know when, when, he oh, I, back, yes, abs- you know, it's one of those, I don't buy other team shirts very often. Uh, but uh, you know, for his entire run in the Mariner, I, I, I proudly wore my Mariners number five Olrude shirt. You know, when the Mariners came in for an interleague series in 2003, I mean, you know, it was you know the Mets were at a nadir, uh, would finish in last place that year and deservedly so. 
but you know, I, I rushed out to Shea Stadium for, the, for their first game so I could give Olerud a huge standing ovation. It was the first time we'd seen him since '99, and again, you know, it, it wasn't a very big crowd. Maybe like 25% of the people like kind of realized what was going on or were on their feet. Same same thing a few months later when Alfonso came back as a giant. Uh, you know that that stuff is always you know it can be awkward because I th- I re- clearly remember like Barry Bonds had just been up ahead of Alfonso, and of course he was eliciting you know an overwrought reaction, some in favor, most opposed, but you know you couldn't take your eyes off him because he was Barry Bonds in his prime, and then you know most of it was it was negative toward Barry Bonds, and then. You know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think he was number th- – we'll say he was number 13 for the Giants. I don't remember. But number 13, uh, Edgardo Alfonso. And, again, me and my friends were up and cheering, and a number of people were. But I remember getting these looks from people like, why are you cheering for this guy on the Giants? Like, And, and, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? I, I, mean, I literally said, what's wrong with you people? Get up. <laughs> so I, I just don't tell people what to do. <laughs> Parks, but uh, <laughs> so you know, fast forwarding here to uh, when it, whenever it is Tahada comes in as a as a cardinal or something else, and whenever it is Murphy comes in as a national, even though we hate the Nationals, um, you know, I look forward to giving it up for them uh, at least once, and then you know you can treat them as the opponent they are, I suppose. But uh, you know, for for now though, you know the, the guys who were here, you know, however. However mad you you'll get it, you know, when David Wright strikes out or Lucas Duda maybe makes a uh, a less than uh, stellar play at first base or you know whichever uh, Familia blows a save, you know you got to kind of keep in mind at least uh, in the long run what they did for us, and um, it's, uh, it's it's it it might not be the easiest thing to remember in the quote unquote heat of battle, but uh, I think in in the long term you know we'll we will look back and. And uh, remember the good stuff. And it's, it's nice to be in that position as a Mets fan after so many years of, oh, you know, what, 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 what did this guy do wrong, and what, what is he going to do wrong next? I will admit, there's one exception to the whole rule of that. I was in Seattle in number 2003, and uh, I don't remember who the Mariners were playing. It was the game I happened to be at. And coming in to the game in relief was the newest member, first day with the Mariners. And I booed the guy. And everybody looked at me like, you are nuts, my friend. And it was Armando Benitez. Um, <laughs> yeah, Armando is a hard case. I help it. I just you had know, to stand up and boo. So, you know, it's, it's too bad. You know, I, I'm sorry that Familia couldn't get one more save last year because then he would hold the, the uh, single-season team record outright, as is he now shares it with Benitez. You know, I, I always, and and you know, we 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 are drifting from pr- promoting my book, but that's okay. <laughs> but um, the um, you know, Benitez did so many good things as a Met when, shall we say, nobody was looking. <laughs> I mean, he was a terrific setup man when he first got here. He holds, I have it written down somewhere. I think it's like fourteen point seven seven strikeouts per nine innings. Whatever you know, the, the K rate per nine. He owns the team record. They would not have made the ninety nine playoffs without him. He saved a lot of games in two thousand two thousand one. They wouldn't have been in a race in two thousand one at the end. Um, clearly, is a guy who you know helped them win a pennant, helped them win a, a wild card. But how can you you know who remembers that because of all those moments, you know, if there had been one or two, you'd say, okay, you know, he had a bad day, but, you know, we, we get behind him. And, yeah, I'm, I'm unfortunate. I'm a, 
I guess I saw him pitch for the Giants against the Mets a few years later, and you know it, it was all I could do to not taunt him all night. And uh, I guess the, la- the last time we saw him as against the Mets was that night where uh, he boxed Reyes from first to third or from second to home, however it worked, and Delgado hits the walk-off home run, and that was probably the peak of 2007, come to think of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would like to believe that if the Mets ever do get around to reuniting the 2000 Mets or that that 99-2000 collective, um, which I don't know that they will, um, I would love to believe that Abe Benitez would show up and be that he'd get a nice hand for the for the good things. But I, I it's... It does not feel far enough removed, you know. Even though we're talking now, 16 years later, <laughs> you know, he's been gone 13 years, uh, where people would not want to boo Armando Benitez. So, uh, you know, I completely understand the impulse. Uh, there was something not sympathetic about him, and uh, to have done the, uh, you know, to 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 have blown the saves that he did. Which again saved a lot of games, helped the team win a, win a lot of games, but uh, it's just impossible uh, to forget, uh, especially la- latter day uh, Benitez. That, then again, I, I will just add that uh, here on uh, Noah Syndergaarden Gnome Weekend, for which the lines out the door at City Field were ridiculous. Um, last year was the first time I saw evidence that the Mets had really turned it around in terms of their popularity because it was Jesse Orozco bobblehead day. And for the first time ever since they've been giving things like that away, there were huge lines, and you had to get there two hours early. And I remember, of course, it's you know Jesse Orozco in his victorious pose, down on his knees, his arms in the air, everything's great. Jesse Orozco's last year was basically Armando Benitez's last couple of years where people couldn't stand him because he was no longer that effective closer and he had not yet transitioned to becoming this left-handed specialist and and stick around as he did. So uh, it was just laughable to me in a way that, you know, they showed... Uh, not Benitez. They showed a Roscoe on the Diamond Vision, and people cheered, and people couldn't wait to get his bobblehead, and people couldn't wait to get his autograph. It's like... And again, you know, again, a lot of these people may, may not have even been born in 1987. But I just remember, you know, he was run out of town. Nobody wanted to look at him anymore. But, uh, you know, he had that magic moment, which I guess Benitez lacked, and nobody nobody cares if Benitez, you know, may, may have saved other things. And uh, Roscoe will forever be a, a hero in the baseball sense in New York, as he should be. And uh, I would, on some level it would be nice if Benitez could, could get a taste of that uh, if he doesn't, it's understandable, and you know, I can only have so many priorities in this life. Well, you know, you mentioned getting a little off track, and I think I like to think of our conversations uh, basically being an educational form of ADD requiring a GPS to completely follow. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fine with me. But I, I, I would like to get a, a little bit more of a plug in as we're just getting ready to wrap up the show. Um, for people who uh, want to pick up the book, want to get this book, I highly recommend it. I read it in, oh, I want to say it took me maybe about two hours, um, but I'm, I'm fast. I'm a fast reader, and uh, I'm, I, I remember all of it, so it's good. Uh, but um, tell people about where they can get the book. Are there any book signings coming up? All of that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's available at barnesandnoble.com. Uh, Certainly in the New York area, it's in Barnes & Noble, uh, some independent bookstores as well. Um, signed copies are available on eBay if you uh, 
you Google uh, Amazing again, uh, 2015. Uh, my sister has a little eBay business. She's nice enough to uh, traffic these for me, and I'm, I'm happy to sign for anybody. Uh, I am doing a signing in two weeks on May 16th in Rockville Center, Long Island, at the beautiful Turn of the Corkscrew Bookstore, which also features wines and beers. Uh, so as we talk about the Mets, you, you can, in fact, drink. And um, there'll be one in Greenpoint in Brooklyn on June 14th at Ward Bookstore, which I'll be doing with John Springer of Mets by the Numbers, and there'll probably be some other things coming. Um, but basically, yeah, amazing again on Amazon. Um and uh, available if you're reading the desktop version of Faith and Fear and Flushing, the blog uh, Jason Fry and I do. We we have uh, links to uh, to that book and uh, the the other books I've written. So um, you know, the 2015 Mets, one of one of five pennants in Met history, the the only one that every Met fan alive has and sentient has lived through and uh, remembers, unless you just became a fan five minutes ago. In which case, that's okay, because you've got to start somewhere. Um, and uh, I appreciate the nice words you said about it, and I uh, well, welcome every Mets fan to read it. Well, I always appreciate it. I, I love our conversations. Uh, I, I always, you know, it's one of those things. I like to consider myself a knowledgeable Met fan. I've been probably year 37 now of following the team intensely. Uh, so a couple of years behind you, but, uh, you know, entering my, about to hit my, what I call my Tom Seaver birthday this year, number 41 is coming up. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've been following almost all my life, raised in a Mets household, and I still feel like every time we talk, I come away going, eh, didn't know that, didn't know that. All right, I got to work harder. <laughs> So it's, I appreciate, it's a, life, it's a I appreciate, lifelong education for all of us. <laughs> absolutely. And I, I appreciate everything that you and Jason do at the blog, all of the books. And uh, like I said, I could, you know, I, I've talked a couple times that uh, you know, this is a good year for Mets fans with books. If you like books, this is a good year for you because uh, you've got a good, good amount of 86 books coming out. Um, I, I suspect uh, yours won't be the last we see of 2015. Uh, but um, I, I think that um, you know there's a lot of good books out there, and this is I mean right right here this is must read, absolute must read. And quite honestly, if you're not that big of a f- book fan, buy it as a souvenir. I know that sounds silly, but it's a great memento of 2015. So in a couple of years, when you feel like you can read and want to, you've got it there on your bookshelf. I'll, I'll take that endorsement, and uh, <laughs> no, I'll say I'll, I'll say one one thing that people have said to me, which I might not realize because you know you you don't, you don't <clears throat> necessarily realize what you're doing while you're doing it is that um, not only people say oh it was great to relive the season and so forth, but it's like you know you you wrote it as a, as a as a real fan, and it is written by a real fan and and not somebody who you know. Is afraid to say we and us, um, you know, which is not to say, you know, I wrote it like a seven-year-old who thought the Mets could do no wrong. It's impossible to function that way if you're a fan. But uh, I, I think what, what differentiates this, this book from the kinds of books that maybe are written by a beat writer after a championship is, uh, you know, there, there's not not only the, a sense of the joy and the excitement. It's like, you know, this is written by somebody who's who's at City Field 30 times a year in the stands who, uh, you know, stands in line to get his bobblehead and, uh, you know, ante's up to, uh, you know, to, to, to get the Mamas of Corona Hero and uh, kind, of, kind of drops stuff like that in along the way as well as, you know, some historical cues. So 
it's a book written by a Mets fan for Mets fans. And if any, you know, again, baseball fans are certainly welcome to read it from other teams and get some insights into how we live. But uh, you know, it, it is definitely a, is something of a a communal product. So um, I, again, thank you, thank you for the kind words, and uh, I, I hope people will uh, avail themselves uh, of, of the book. Absolutely, and like I said, I you know it, I, I'm a big book guy. I love having a nice big uh, Met bookshelf, uh, but uh, certainly this is uh, one of my favorite additions to it lately. And I, I'm you know I'm excited already about the uh, the next book for uh, next spring. And not like we need the excuse to have you back, but we'll certainly have you back for that. Book. Anytime, anytime. Well, my friend, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how May goes after the exciting April fourth best record in baseball. Um, entering uh, play today, and uh, they maintain that, and uh, it should be a fun May. And uh, I, I always kind of look at EJ and I both talk about it as kind of Memorial Day, as kind of figuring out sort of what you got that to work with this year. It's kind of one of the first most definitive moments. Um, and so as as we kind of make it towards Memorial Day, it'd be very interested to see how how this team holds together. But I, I certainly don't feel like there are any necessarily cracks in the ship that are immediate areas of concern. Yeah, I think this is a very fully realized roster. You can always make improvements around the edges. You can always do things about your depth. Uh, we've seen with Darno on the disabled list. Now you're down to one catcher who is a known quantity. Uh, relief pitchers are always kind of burning themselves out to a certain degree. So you, you know, you look forward to getting somebody like Josh Edgen back. Uh, you, you never know who's going to go down. Uh, unfortunately, that happens in the course of the season. So improvements can always be made, and you have faith now after last year that they will be made. But this is, again, like I said about Friday night's 12-run 12, 12 inning, this is a hell of a lineup, and there there are no soft spots. I mean, people are going to have their their slumps, and you kind of have to, you know, today was a reminder of that. And uh, there are going to be losses, and there are going to be even losing streaks probably. But you know you ha- you have to you know if you if you can't have faith in a team that sends Syndergaard and Harvey and Degrom and Mats and Cologne to the hill in a row and keeps doing that, <laughs> and uh, you can't have faith in somebody like Familia coming in in the ninth inning, uh, and you can't have faith in Conforto and Cespedes and Granderson and, and even Wright at this stage of his career, then you know you can't have faith in anything. So uh, we're set up pretty well, and it may not be easy. And there are no guarantees, but uh, this is so much better than you know what we grew used to in the early city field years. And it's such a much better place to be now, both physically and literally, but also figuratively and spiritually, just a better place to be as a Mets fan. And I'm, I'm just so happy that the people who never knew what the hell those of us who remember 86, and in my case, 69, 73, uh, even the people who didn't know from 99 and 2000, uh, now understand what it's like to root for a Mets team that, you know, is more likely than not to win and uh, has every chance to go far. And uh, it has to be a revelation for people under a certain age or people who just, you know, discovered baseball through some whatever means in, say, 2010 and wonder, you know, I'm a Mets fan, I don't know why, but I love them, but they never win. Well, finally you got a team that wins or and has a chance to keep winning, and really that's all you can ask for. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful way to spend the season. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I look forward to it. I think that I think you're right. I think that you know this, this is going to be potentially a little bit of a streaky team. Um, I think you've got a couple of streaky hitters, and uh, you know you can kind of you know see uh, a few if a few too many go cold at once. Uh, perhaps a three, four, five game losing streak coming around. But uh, these guys are just simply too good. I do believe that the the good uh, streaks will outweigh the bad streaks. And uh, I got a text earlier, uh, just before the show, from a friend of mine who's a Giants fan, and he said, uh, "You know, congratulations on getting two out of three from us. You got our two crappy pitchers." And I wrote back, I went, "Crappy pitchers? What are those again?" <laughs> because well, uh, it's, it's like, I'm, it's, sorry, I'm having some short-term memory issues. I don't remember what a bad pitcher is like. Uh, uh, you know, and that may be, that may be words that bite me in the end, but it, it's, maybe. it's well, nice to be able to say. No, no, no aspersions against your friend, but Jake Peavy and Matt Cain have had great careers, so uh, you know he can take his chances with them. Uh, they're not Madison Bumgarner right now, but uh, we beat we beat a couple of, uh, of pros, and uh, good good luck to the Giants. I don't really care what happens to them. <laughs> onto on the onto the Braves and uh, the Padres and whoever else is next on the schedule. I on, I only care about the Giants again if we face them in October. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, we'll play three on the West Coast, obviously, but I yeah. really only care about it uh, if we play them in October. Well, Greg, man, always a pleasure, always fun, always educational, and always one of my favorite conversations. Thanks, JB. Same here. We will talk soon. Uh, and, of course, again, the book, Amazing Again, the, the website, Faith and Fear and Flushing. And uh, on Twitter, uh, you can follow him as well. Make sure you do it. It's uh, an absolute education and uh, I, you know, I can say you'll be a better fan afterwards because I know I am. And uh, you know, that if I could say it's you know me, I, I'm certainly not judging anybody because uh, I'm about as humble as you get, and I'm really good at it. So you know, Greg, we'll talk soon, my friend. Look forward to it. Thanks again. Absolutely, Greg Prince. Uh, of course, uh, amazing again. How the 2015 New York Mets brought the magic back to Queens. Head over to Amazon. Or look it up at eBay where you can get yourself an autographed copy. Uh, play back the podcast if you want to hear about the uh, the um, signings he's got coming on. Faith and Fear and Flushing is the is the website. Um, at different kind of blogs than anybody else is doing, and everybody else anybody else has has done. Um, just a, a great thinking man's Met blog. And again, like I said, if if you have a desire to be a more educated fan of the New York Mets, it doesn't matter if you've been a fan for 40 minutes or 40 years. Faith and Fear and Flushing is a place that you are going to become that person and uh, you are going to be a, a more knowledgeable fan because of uh, what uh, Jason and Greg write over there. And I want to thank again Greg for joining us and especially for joining us for the whole program with uh, EJ and Ryan on the Disabled List for today. We'll be back with another show next week and hopefully another win streak to report on until next week. As we enter May, let's go Mets!